You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Tanya Long-Bennett. She is a professor of English at the University of North Georgia and the author of I Have Been So Many People, a study of Lee Smith's novels. Recently, she has returned from a Fulbright in Romania, where she taught two courses on Southern literature at the University of Bucharest. She is the editor of Critical Essays on the Writing of Lillian Smith, and she teaches Smith regularly in her courses. Adrian Mutsa is an English teacher education student, and he took one of Dr. Bennett's courses uh, at the university. Today, we're going to speak with them about teaching and reading Smith in Romania, Smith's artistry, and more. So thank you for joining me today, you two. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great. I mean, one of you is in Romania and one of you is right down the road in Gainesville. So I mean, it's all over the world today. And we've had an earlier episode, actually the first episode of the podcast was with um, Michal Hoyinski from um, Poland. So actually Lillian Smith's works, you know, across the, across the pond, I think is a really fascinating, interesting, important topic. So let's just jump right into it. And to begin with, I mean, I have to ask you about the critical essays. I mean, the edited collection just came out in November and you point out that the collection helps. And this is where most of scholarship on Smith deals with civil rights, social justice, or activism, right? Yes. But you point out that your collection helps in, quote, expanding, in particular, the scholarship of Smith's literary prowess and impact. So I have to admit what drew me to Smith initially were her ideas and the social justice and the civil rights and all of that. But as is the case with any writer, Ernest Gaines included, which you may talk about, um, the more I read her, the more I become engaged with her style and artistry. So can both of you kind of speak, you know, about this aspect of her work? I mean, why is it important for us to look at her style or her artistry? Well, I can start and then I'd love to hear from Adrian about uh, his impressions of this. Well, Smith, of course, identified personally as a literary writer. Um, she was a little miffed not being recognized in the United States in particular in the literary circles. And she knew she, you know, she was well known and she knew that, but she felt slighted, I think. And like maybe people were missing part of what she was trying to do. And I think that was more than just vanity on her part. She expresses over and over again that imagination is necessary for bridging the past with the present and the future and also for bridging conflicting perspectives of people. And she talks about the role of artists in creating a new kind of life on this earth, as she says in um, her essay, Novelists Need a Commitment. So there's even uh, the commitment is not enough on its own. It's, you know, the commitment of art and and, um, artistic projects. She um, says in um, one of her essays called The Role of the Poet in a World of Demagogues, I'm, I'm actually reading from the introduction to the book here. Once we see it, once we begin to realize by active imagination and heart the meaning of what is happening to us, once we feel the direction we're going, then things will fall in line, chaos will resolve into new forms. And it's the poet's job to show us, for only the poet can look beyond the details at the total picture. Only the poet can feel the courage beyond fear. Only he can grasp the splinters and bend them into a new wholeness that does not yet exist. So I want to add one thing, and then I'd love to hear from Adrian on this, but I think that um, the notion of the sublime is important here. Uh, She doesn't talk about the sublime in particular, but I know when we read a great piece of literature or we see a beautiful piece of art or we listen to an amazing uh, composition of music, the ones that have the greatest impacts are the ones that give us that experience of the sublime, of that kind of that uh, experience of profound emotion or um, awe that seem to surpass logic. And there's a lot of argument about whether you can ever really surpass the intellect, but, but that I would say that at the very least, those moments integrate the intellect and the emotions in a, in a unique way. So those, those kind of works have a lot of power. And I think that as Longinus said, you know, the sublime 
has the power to tear everything up like a whirlwind. So it'd be one thing for her to write it, you know, in, in a kind of bullet points of what we should be doing to fix the problems of the South, but she doesn't do that. And what she does has a lot more impact because of her art, artistic strategies and all that. So anyway, um, I, I don't know if Adrian wants to add something to this. Well, I would like to, I'll be a bit more spontaneous than Professor Bennett, uh, but I have to say that it's really important to understand the style and artistry of a writer because only that way you can understand what the writer wants to say. I mean, it's it's almost like each of us has a different voice, a different tone. Just every writer has a very different tone and you got to understand it and you got to understand that it's different from the others in order to fully grasp what the author wanted to say. And I think Lillian Smith has a very um, metaphorical style. She rarely uses, you know, she rarely speaks directly what she wants to say. And I think that's the beauty of it. I mean, you got to understand that at the end of the day, she's a writer who uses a lot of metaphors to explain issues, not to give necessarily solutions, but to explain issues. And I, I think this is what I wanted to add in extension to what Professor Bennett had said. Well, one thing that I've kind of noticed and looking through everything, and I've read, I have to admit, I haven't read one hour, so I haven't read the novel that a lot of people like, you know, and I've, I haven't read everything within her kind of collected published stuff. But even reading her essays and speeches, you know, what I notice is what you were saying, uh, Dr. Bennett, about the fact that the artist is the one that's going to move us forward. It's not going to be, I was, I just taught um, Buying a New War with Old Confederate Bills from 1943, right, which is about the war and why we shouldn't be involved in the war partly. It's in about the South. It's, it's this huge kind of broad global piece. But one of the things that kind of stuck out to me when, when we were talking about yesterday in class was the fact that she says that money is not going to get us out of this. These isms aren't going to get us out of it. What's going to get us out of it and get us to a new world is the creative energy, right? And these types of things. And I think that that's very important. And as you said, she viewed herself as an artist and she was miffed that she wasn't viewed as an artist. There's one quote that she gives, I think in that 1960 interview with CBS, and she's basically like, the South has lost a ton of its creative energy because they are focused on the race issue and solving it right so it's but i would disagree with her and say that some of the great art came out of that. Ernest Gaines came out of that which leads me to what you were saying um adrian about the voice of the author because Ernest Gaines is specifically that you know he's inspired by William Faulkner and F. Scott Fitzgerald and all that but his voice is totally his own and then Alice Walker is inspired by Ernest Gaines she wrote to Ernest Gaines and asked him how do you, I love your dialect. I wish I could write middle Georgia dialect, like you write South Louisiana black dialect, right? So that style and that voice are important. And I like the fact that you said that what she's doing, she never gets the point. She uses metaphor. And that's definitely the case throughout her. Cause she's not, she has pieces where she goes bullet by bullet. Cause one of the things I've been trying to figure out in, in this class, it's an LA studies class, is what does she mean by democracy <laughs> And counter, question. what does she mean by communism? Because we see those two intention and she never gives you a clear definition. I'm not expecting her to, but, but she doesn't even give you kind of something you can kind of hold on to at times, right? It's just like they're there. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. That's something that even today we're struggling to completely define <laughs> when we use those terms. I know. So let's move on just a little bit because y'all did Strange Fruit and my copy sadly is not here. It's at the house. I thought it was here. So I may not be able to pull the exact thing or you may not be able to pull, but are there any passages or kind of sections in Strange Fruit that stand out to you in regard to her style? I do have one in my mind now. And if you think of those, how did they kind of impact you when you read the novel? So like, is, there, is there any section you kind of remember that you were drawn to? I, I have my copy, but I would be glad to let Adrian respond first to this. Yes, I knew in advance what I wanted to say in this <laughs> because there is a passage that really impressed me and I really, really loved is the conversation between Tracy and Preacher Dunwoody. I always thought that this is how a dialogue between the big bad, the villain of the story and the hero of the story should look like. And this, it's actually a really weird but really cool combination because Dunwoody doesn't state anything directly, but at the same time, you know exactly what he means. It's a very interesting combination between, you know, giving facts and just giving, you know, metaphors 
and he employs the idea of God that you can't live in Maxwell without without God. But here he doesn't actually mean God as in God how we usually perceive the idea of God, but God as racism and segregation. And I thought that was so blew my mind when I read it because it was so obvious that preacher Dunwoody was an evil character. He was purely evil and it was so amazing. And yet from that dialogue, you might not get it at first. You have to read it a few times to get it. This is, I think that specific passage really captures the whole nature of Lillian Smith and her works and her writings, you know, being direct, but in a very not direct manner. I, I don't know if it really makes a lot of sense, but when someone reads that passage, it, you really understand what Lillian Smith is all about and what Strange Fruit is all about and what like the messages she wanted to convey are all about. That passage really stood out to me and defined her and her work and the way she viewed the whole issue in the South and is just amazing. I got to relook at that passage, but when you were talking about that, by saying things to the dialogue and not saying them, I thought of Gaines because Gaines has that sparse dialogue where you're not getting as much narrative, but you're getting mm-hmm. what's going on through that. I, I'm thinking of The Sky is Gray, which is a story y'all read. If you remember the the time when, ah, oh, crap, I've read that story so many times, I forgot the, the kid's name. James, right? James, yeah. James. When James and his mother go into town, there's this amazing paragraph where he's like, we walked by the courthouse and the statue out front, right? And all these types of things that point to segregation and point to Confederate monuments when he goes by the courthouse. He does it unless before dying, too. Through the, through the kid's narration point of view. It's just these these quick things. And unless you're attuned to what he's saying, you're not going to know. And there's another section there too, where that same section where they're on the bus right before they get to town. And there's this one or two pages where he's like, they got a sign up there. They got pool dues, which are birds, you know, on the water. And you never get the clear who they is, mm-hmm. but it's obvious who the they is, right? So it's it's really just kind of, with him, that's what stands out to me. And my passage that I thought about, I know I just cut you off, Tanya, I apologize, but th- there's two that I think about. And th- these go back to my first reading of Strange Fruit. I didn't like it the first time I read it. And I think partly I was reading it quickly and I wasn't, I wasn't as knowledgeable about Smith as I am now, I think was part of it. But I reread it last fall and I was like, this is really good stylistically for one thing too. But the two passages, and these stood out to me the first time I read it. The one where Tracy's talking about the war and he's talking about the dirt that covers him and the dirt travels with him. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about he's thinking about Nani and he's like, she's just Nani. But no, she's not just Nani. She's she's in. She's an in. Right. Which is directly from Gene Toomer. There's kind of I think in Kane, there's a there's a story kind of that deals with that, too. You know, why can't why can't she be just who she is? Why does she have to be, you know, black, the derogatory term for black? And I think that's a powerful thing. And the metaphor, the dirt carrying with him to, you know, over to France. But then also the end of the novel, when you have Bess and Nani, and I forgot the other woman, who after the killing are just going about their business because there's nothing else they can do, right? There's just this, we can't do anything else. We're going to work. And we're putting on the mask, basically. I mean, it's Du Bois's double consciousness and Paul Lawrence Dunbar and all of that. But those are really powerful kind of moments. But the dirt, definitely. What about you, Tanya? Well, I was thinking of a passage just preceding the, the last one that you mentioned. Uh, this is right before the lynching. So if it's okay, I'm just going to read it. Bill and Dee and the others from Shug Rushton's turpentine farm and the cotton fields, from Harris's sawmill, from a shanty back of Shaky Pond and Ellatown, from old Captain Rushman's commissary and the logging camp, roads threading whitely through the county, curving around oak black lake and pond, pushing across swamp and hammock, tying its cotton and little grade cabins, its barrels of rosin and its turpentine and tall pines, mule and church and bank, white folks and black to Maxwell and to each other. Down these roads they came, shadows falling foreshortened and stubby on palmetto clumps as they plodded along in the heat, hearts as slashed as the pines under which they paused now and then, bodies as drained as the sand on their feet, but white, God white and immaculate, white, white as Jesus, as an unborn child's soul. And now they were on their way to put the inn in his place, once more to put the inn in his place. 
when I first read that passage, I just, you know, had goosebumps. <laughs> um, there's a lot, a lot going on there. And um, the chapter that I contributed to the critical essays book is about geography, how um, Smith uses geography, both literally and also as a metaphor for kind of psychological boundaries that are created by segregation and and how those boundaries really um, kind of cripple people and make them deformed, kind of psychologically deformed. And so the way she um, described those those white roads like thread, kind of pulling the county together, but really emphasizing that they're white, they're white, it's whiteness that is forming uh, that community, the idea of whiteness even. Well, that whole section. Go Go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. Well, she, in the novel as a whole, she combines really a first person perspective. If you're thinking about where she's, Mm -hmm. uh, we're in the mind of Tracy, let's say it's usually not in first person. It's in third person, but it's a uh, narrative point of view where we're in Tracy's head. You know, then we go to other characters, consciousness and focus there. Um, But this passage is a more omniscient perspective, kind of a bird's eye view. So she moves the kind of the camera, you know, pans out so that you can see a more kind of panoramic view of the community. And um, her use, again, I think, uh, as Adrian keeps emphasizing, her use of the roads and the landscape, both literally to kind of emphasize place and the importance of place, but also metaphorically is so powerful. It's both terrible and beautiful, right? The descriptions. Um, She's trying to tell us that we're demeaning ourselves and others with these dynamics, but they are so strong. (laughs) Those dynamics are so strong. So I think that passage, what she's capturing there is is conveyed so much um, more powerfully than if she were to just sort of state it, you know, okay, segregation is bad for us. When I was listening to that, you're looking at the space and the threads, but I was trying to look up something else too while you were reading the whole thing, but what sticks out is everything that she writes about in her nonfiction or her essays is in there with the church and what Adrian was talking about with Dunwoody, right? With the economics, right? Which he talks about at the end of Three Ghosts that the men stand there on the corner. There's this passage in Killers, and this is what it reminds me of if I can find it real quick. But when he, I think it's the, the Three Ghost Stories, that section. Yeah, I, I'm just going to read this real quick. I mean, even the the intro to Killers, I mean, even its children knew that the South was in trouble. She's summing up a lot there. The one line I always go to is the white Christian is conscious. The opening line of that sums up so much so succinctly that she writes, ever since the first white Christian enslaved the first black man, the conscience of America has been hurting. I mean, that sums up an entirety of things. And at the end of Three Ghost Stories, I was thinking about this when you when you're reading that passage. And this is, of course, the three ghost stories, the um, the enslaved black woman who the master rapes, right? Or the enslaver rapes or just the black woman in the quarters who the white landowner rapes, the mammy or the nurse. And then, of course, the children produced by their relationships with the trails to the backyard. But she writes, those faces on Main Street shaded by wide straw hats are surrounded in my child memory. By hardware and plows, seed bags and bales of cotton, the smell of guano and mule lots, hot sun on sidewalks and lovely white ladies with sweet childlike voices and smooth childlike faces and old gardens of boxwood and camellias and fields endlessly carving around my soul world, my small world. I know now that the bitterness, the cruel sensual lips, the quick tears and hard eyes, the sashaying buttocks of the brown girls, the thin childish voices of white women, had a great deal to had a great deal to do with high interest at the bank and low wages in the mills and gullied fields and lynchings and Ku Klux Klan and segregation and sacred womanhood and revivals and prohibition and that no part of this memory can be understood without recalling all of it. I mean, she's summing up what she sums up there in a different way, right? And what stood out, like I said, when you read that too, was they were walking their white feet, white like God, immaculate. <laughs> which goes back to Dunwoody. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there's there's so much we could do. So let's get into actually what you taught about, because I was reading your blog about your about your travels. My wife wrote a blog when we were in Norway for our travels there. I kind of wrote, I mean, I write a blog that, that posts every twice a week, and I wrote some about kind of what I was doing in Norway, but she was the one who really chronicled everything extensively about what we did, not what I did in the classroom, though. I did that. 
but you write about your experiences teaching in Romania. And in one of your posts, you write, quote, I've enjoyed sharing with the students my perspective on Southern literature, culture, and history. Like Lillian Smith, I have a complicated relationship with the South and the U.S. at large. The music, foods, religious symbols, mythologies, and landscapes are inextricably tied up in my personality and my understanding of the world around me, which that sounds like me. So can you talk about this some, especially as it relates to Smith? And Audrey, can you kind of talk about, you were talking about before we started recording about, you know, connecting with the South a little bit, but not knowing, of course, a lot about it. And can you kind of talk about what you kind of see as these connections, I guess that we'd say? You want to start, Adrian? <laughs> I think it's better if you start because okay. you know, it would be a bit more of a natural progression, so to speak. Okay. Well, I came to the end. One of the reasons I wrote that is because I came to the end of the semester and we were running out of time. You know, we were into student presentations and <laughs> I thought, well, I've, I've pretty much said what I'm going to be able to say to them about the South. And I realized that because I am a professor and I'm, you know, an educator, we had been looking at the South through a critical lens the entire semester. Uh, and we, our classes were based on questions around race. Uh, one was called Black and White, and it was about um, Black and White in terms of race. And the other class was uh, Multicultural Literature of the South. So it was looking at other ethnicities, some, some uh, Black writers, but also uh, some from other ethnic groups. So really, that's what we were talking about all semester. And it's, it's hard to um, emphasize the positive in, in that uh, conversation. Um, and, I'm, and I'm used to teaching in, in the South where students, I need to defamiliarize for them. You know, they're sort of used to the comfort of, of being home, right? And um, sort of feeling that the South is, is the most comfortable place. It's maybe even the best place, right? And maybe they even have a kind of elevated sense of the mythology of the South and all of that. So usually when I'm using that critical approach, I'm, I'm really playing devil's advocate a lot. I'm trying to challenge what students already think. But I realized at the end of the semester in Romania that the students had no experience with the positive parts of the South. They, they mainly maybe have only really heard about the violence and the racism and um, so I wanted to, and I actually did a presentation that I, I gave them to do, to look at on their own since we ran out of time where I kind of addressed this question. Why do I stay? If things are so bad, why do I stay? Yeah, why do you know, what is there stay? to redeem the South, right? And so I, I was thinking about the, the reasons why I love the South. Now, I'm actually from Texas. Oh, that, that, that is not Southeast. the South. I've been living in the Southeast since... I was about 20, 25 years old. So okay. it's, it's been, a, I've lived okay. here longer than I lived in Texas. Um, so I, I do feel uh, that it's my home and, um, th and I, there's a lot I love about it. And I, I hope you'll indulge me. I want to read a little passage uh, from Strange Fruit because um, Eddie, one of the black characters in Strange Fruit asks, he hates the South and he, he hates to come back because everything mm -hmm. about it just feels demeaning to him. He's now been in the military. He's got a good job in DC. And so he just feels like he's going back to humiliation when he comes home. So he asks his sister, Bess, you know, what, <clears throat> why do you stay in Maxwell? And she tries to answer the question. Now, this is her thinking later about the conversation. So these are just her thoughts. But she says, you don't know why you stay in a place where you were born. How can you be sure? There are a thousand reasons why it's easier to stay than go. A thousand good memories. Um, and she describes a lot of the natural, um, flora, moss trailing in your face when you're little, you'd make great pillows of it, flop deep down in them, feeling luxurious and rich, oak trees you couldn't reach around, you'd try and some other child would try and your fingertips would touch against rough bark and you and that other human being separated by slow ancient years of giant growth, fingertips touching around a hundred years would giggle, feeling you'd encircled in some strange way grown-up knowledge that children should not know. But she goes on to think a little bit about Sam, uh, a man whom she's always loved, even though he's not her husband. And I think like her, you know, a lot of what, what I love about the South are the relationships that I have with the people here. And there's a kind of openness in the culture that, I mean, clearly there's some kind of unspoken closed places too. So people know the psychological boundaries, or at least <clears throat> if they want to survive, they need to learn about them. But um, 
you know, on my own street here, as I'm walking my dogs, I stop two or three times to talk to my neighbors because we all know each other. And we sort of have, uh, I think, a, a very Southern relationship with each other. And it's a pretty diverse neighborhood. But in addition to those things, I think what excites me about the South is the, the potential. It's like a microcosm that can help us understand the dynamics that are going on all over the world. That's what Lillian points out. Yes. And and she would say things like, you know, well, let's not try to fix the problems over in Europe when we've got even worse ones going on right here. Which is, yeah, which is what she's, I've started digging into that more and buying a new world with old Confederate bills is exactly that. She's basically like, why should we come to the aid of Britain when they're doing this, you know, colonial stuff and treating India and other areas negatively, right? You know, yes, Hitler Nazism is bad. And she's very much against that. But she's also like, we have our own issues here. And yes. especially when you have individuals like African-Americans is what she's talking about in some cases. And re- she reprints a letter from an African-American guy who refused the draft, right? Because of the treatment he's receiving here. I mean, yeah. our U.S., the military wasn't integrated until 48, right? But but yeah. she chose to stay. Ernest Gaines chose to stay. And there's there's two things that you kind of pointed out there. That, that one from her, she always talks about the landscape. Mm-hmm. And I think the landscape is important and what I thought about and even when I read that art that section because she's she's talking about South Georgia mm-hmm. we don't have those giant oak trees up here in North Georgia right. right we don't have the Spanish moss up here in North Georgia I think about Louisiana and South Louisiana and I think about Ernest Gaines and there's a section in the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman where she talks to the tree and she said you've seen you know you've seen things that tree's like 400 years yeah. old 500 years old right those types of things, I think, are very kind of, from the natural aspect, appealing. And then on top of that, I think of, um, I taught Solomon Northrop's 12 Years a Slave, you know, a few years back. And when I, when I reread it, and even in the film, so if you, if you, have you read it, Audrey, and have you seen the film? I've seen the film a couple okay. of times. Okay, so even in the film, Steve McQueen does this, and I think it's very kind of telling. The cicadas kind of got on my nerves. <laughs> but in 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 his narrative, and remember, he's from the north. He's from New York, right? And he's taken into slavery and sold down to Louisiana. But in the narrative, there's multiple points, probably about at least three or four, maybe more, where he juxtaposes the beauty of the landscape with the brutality of enslavement. And one of them is actually when he whips um crap, when he whips Patsy, when when his master requires him to whip Patsy. He talks about the beauty of the cotton field and the beauty of the of the landscape right before he violently whips her. And then if you remember Steve McQueen's film, there's always these there's there's these moments of the beauty of the Spanish moss swaying from the trees. Right. Of the landscape. So that kind of juxtaposition is there. And then, like you said, the community as well. So, yeah, even best. And this is something I talked about in the chapter in the critical essays book. Um there's some good theory out there about geography and how it affects people uh, in different ways, depending on their identity markers. So if Bess were to move to Washington, D.C., her life would be very different than Eddie's. She has a child. And right now there's a white woman who keeps her child for her mm-hmm. for free, who lives near her. And of course, it's Miss Ada, who's considered to be crazy. And so she's got her own kind of place in the pecking order, which is kind of low at this point. But even if the place is very limiting for Bess, she has to balance a lot of factors and the community that she's carved out for herself there is, is important. So um, I think I would say similar things about um, anybody who lives in the South who's experiencing some oppression or or anyone who lives anywhere, honestly. Um, I wanted to ask Audrian maybe to talk a little bit about, um, so when I was teaching the class, I asked the students, you know, is there any kind of parallel dynamic here in Romania? And there were students who mentioned the Roma people. Can you talk about that at all, Audrey, about how um, maybe there's some kind of similarities there? I wasn't really ready for this, but I'm going to talk a bit about it because it's a very sensitive, it's a very complicated subject. And here in Romania, people have a sort of misunderstanding about what racism is. And in Romania, you can easily be called a racist even if you are not one. And so the whole dynamic between Romanians and the Roma community is difficult. There there have been some uh, hundreds of years of slavery, 
But at the same time, the Roma community was always free. They were uh, nomads. They traveled a lot. There is literature. We have books about the Roma people, about how they live their lives, you know, in their communities without being affected, how they went to towns and people gave them money and they offered some sort of spectacle, but it was all free. And in present, there is a very difficult, very difficult situation with the Roma community because there have been real efforts from everybody to include them in everyday activities at school. When I was young, I mean, pretty much everyone from Romania, I think when they were young, they would play with Roma children without you know knowing that they were Roma children. But the thing is, there are some Roma people who are very, very violent. You know, at the end of the day, it's when you are young, and I'm saying this because when you are young, you don't care about the skin color. You have no idea if someone is from the Roma community or whatever. I mean, I didn't care. We, you know, we were just playmates. And, you know, we get along with everyone. But when someone gets really violent and it gets really dangerous, it's not good, you know. And the Roma community has a lot of elements that are bad. And I'm saying this directly because it is the reality that many, many people face. It's about violence, it is about being mistreated. And the Romanian people rarely do something about it. I mean, they don't respond to the violence because we actually fear that we might be called racist just because we want to avoid violence. But that doesn't mean like no one has anything directly towards the Roma community. But the thing is, it is a very big contrast between them and us. And I, I, I have no idea what, what's the cause, honestly. That this, this part is unknown to me. But the thing is, we treat them as human beings. And the truth is that some of them are, can be really dangerous. And I have been called a racist for saying this out loud. And at university, you are not allowed to say this that some Roma people are dangerous because they are dangerous. I mean, a lot of people lost their lives, you know, just because they were on the wrong street. And this is not fair. So I mean, a... it's really unfair to me because I, I look at everyone the same. I never ever in my life, and many people from Romania never ever judge someone based on their skin color. I mean, we judge people based on stupid stuff, but skin color is not one of them. You know, their ethnic origin is not one of them. So there is this really complicated and weird, and I don't know how should I call it, but it is very strange dynamic that I think affects us all. And it annoys me because I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist individual. I've never been one. If I ever made, you know, like racist comments, I made them out of, you know, just not knowing enough. But this is a human mistake. So this is it. It's 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 kind of similar at, at first, but then when you look at things, it, it really turns out to be different because there were real efforts even before the Romanian revolution during the communist regime, you know, to integrate the Roma people just among everyone to live like everyone. But I mean, it is a funny story, but um, uh, during the communist regime, uh, some uh, blocks were built for them because they lived in conditions in tents or in, you know, just mud brick houses and it was terrible. And they just came and they went to school like children would go to school and stuff like it, it was never about not going to school. And they actually started burning things inside the house, but they they had heating. So, you know, it's kind of. In a way, this is summarizes the whole situation. You, you just don't know what to do at the end of the day because some are dangerous, some are not. I mean, I have met some really incredible Roma people that had, you know, like no BA degree or MA or, you know, maybe even high school, but they were so warm and so incredible. And I had, I had some of the most, some of the deepest and most incredible conversations with them. But at, at the same time, when I was younger, I was used to be bullied by Roma children that are still doing it in the present. And I see it every day and it annoys me because it, I think it's ignorance from the Romanian state and the Romanian government, but it's not ignorance from us, from the people. I'm sorry, I think I went into too much detail, but it's just an issue that presses me and it yeah. annoys me every day yeah. because people are being called racist without, you know, being racist. Yeah. So there's well, a... I the, the, I was about to, there's a couple of things you, you mentioned. I don't know the history, so I can't speak to that. But I was just listening to what you said. And I was thinking you mentioned that you that you see similarities between the issues that Smith talks about and the other authors talked about. Um, 
and with <laughs> Romanians and the and the Roma people. And as you were talking, I was like, yeah, that's a similarity, like the childhood thing for one, you know, not not caring until somebody says you should care, right? Which is an endemic thing, you know, culturally with Smith, because I don't know if, if Dr. Bennett told you the story, but one of the formative events with Smith's life was there was a, a family who came to her town in, in Florida, right? And they had, it was a black family. They had a kid who was white, who was phenotypically looked white like her, right? <laughs> and the women in the town got together and like, what is this white kid doing with this black family? And they took the kid from the family. And Smith calls her white in the writing. And the kid comes to live with, with Smith and, and her family and her siblings for like three or four weeks, something like that. I don't remember exactly how long. And eventually the, these white women are like, oh no, she's actually black. So they take her and put her back with the family. And Smith is like, ask her mom. She's like, why did, why is she gone? And her mom's like, just because she has to. She's like, well, could she come and play with us? She's like, no. She's like, but she slept in the bed next to me for three weeks. You know, why not? Because she can't. You know, you understand later, right? So the essential, the essential point of that, you know, is that there's no issue with her playing with her when she thinks she's white, for one, right? But they're kids, too. And Lil's asking, you know, what's going on? And her mom has imbibed those cultural ideas that oh she's black so she's bad so with the kids i was thinking about that i was thinking about that too and just kind of the psychological thing and when you mention like i said i don't know much about it but when you mentioned them building you know houses or apartments or whatever i was thinking about the psychological effects of oppression which smith deals with but then i was also thinking about there's an essay from from james baldwin i don't remember the title of it but he's talking about Harlem and he's talking about one of the, one of the projects in Harlem and he's talking about why individuals, you know, basically destroyed it. And it was because no one was giving them assistance or anything, you know, with that too. So I think there's a lot of issues just from listening to you. Like I said, I don't know the history, but just listening that kind of came to mind. I think um, from a study that I was reading uh, about some of the dynamics involving the Roma, one thing that seemed true is that, you know, systemic, I'll call it racism, uh, because it's simply, but, but it's, but, you know, there's no such thing as race, really. So it's about ethnic um, tensions, I guess, when those things are systemic, we often can't see what's causing what, you know, and often we're all complicit in it, including the people who are oppressed. Mm -hmm. So one of the people who was in her story, who was Roma, said that he was, he felt a real kind of self-loathing that he felt that he wasn't as good as everyone else. And, and he said, really, he had gotten that message from his own family. And so when something like that is, is so ingrained, you know, when you've got this dynamic that keeps reinforcing that idea, um, it's hard to say where it's coming from, you know, at that point, it's kind of infiltrated the whole culture so that it's really hard to escape it. So I, I really did, while I was there, I really did start to see how complicated it is. I watched a little bit of interaction between, for example, the Roma and the police at a, in a train station, and I could see that it's really complicated. Uh, so, yeah, I don't mean to, to say, well, it's clearly it's just like what's happening in the South. No, uh, we fine. very directly took black people to Africa and enslaved them. So it's it's a different history. But what I think what Lillian, I think this is where Lillian Smith is good. And y'all didn't read Killers of the Dream or anything from that, did you? We, we did a few some excerpts. Yeah. And, and the reason why I think Lillian Smith is good, she's she's focusing on the South there. But but I think what she does is she makes her work global, too. She's very much involved in India. I mean, she never talks about Romania and, and the Roman Romanians or anything like that. She talks about India and the caste system, right? She talks about colonialism in, the, in India. And I think what she kind of and she talks about the end of colonialism in Africa. She's talking about those things. I think what and she talks about the psychology of oppression on the oppressed, she talks about that, but she focuses on the psychology of the oppressor. You know, somebody like James Baldwin would be good of looking, you know, this psychology on people who are oppressed or Franz Fanon. But that kind of whole thing, I think, is important. And she points those things out. And you can look at her work and take it out of the black, white binary and put it elsewhere. Because I think in Norway, and I think of the things I learned when I was in Norway about kind of the interactions, I didn't see any, I, I did see a few Roma. I didn't realize they were Roma at first, um, you know, 
um, on the streets, but I didn't see any reactions with them. But I saw the way that Norwegians were towards, say, Poles, right? Because the Polish were basically their immigrant labor, mm-hmm. you know? So I kind of saw that. I learned about the I learned about how they were with, you know, refugees from Syria, how they were with with Muslims. Right. And I kind of I see similarities between kind of what what Lillian talks about in these kind of things. They're, they're not one to one. We know that. But I think there are things that we can think about. And I do agree with Tanya about the fact that, you know, the psychology of these systems on the person who's being oppressed because that person buys into it. Who's the guy who gets lynched in strange fruit? Who's Henry Tracy? Is it Henry? Henry. I think a Henry. I mean, to a certain extent, that's what, that's what's happening with him. Right. Psychologically. And Eddie's the opposite of that. Yeah. If you think about it. And to a certain extent, I would say, you know, Nani may, I have problems with Nani. FYI. Yeah. I (laughs) I do too. (laughs) I have have very big problems with Nani, but that's a whole nother issue. Okay. So I know we diverted a little bit. That's okay. Um, so let, let me kind of, let me kind of, I'm trying to figure out what question to wrap up with. Let me wrap up with this question. And this one's to you, Adrian. So you took, you took Dr. Bennett's course, black and white. And I do have this in the question where y'all read pieces by Smith, Charles Chestnut, Nella Larson, William Faulkner, Richard Wright, and more. You just talked about the similarities, but explored not the one-to-one similarities, but talked about those a little bit. What was your other another author or another piece that y'all read in that class that you really liked that stood out to you that stuck with you oh that stood out to me personally uh that connected with you Ernest Gaines he had a style that I really appreciate he uses a lot of figures of speech he and I don't know I, I actually thought that his style was pretty direct I mean I knew what he meant I also read his short stories very attentively especially the sky is gray i don't know why it resonated so much with me but it just did and i also i enjoyed that part where the priest uh, actually beats the the boy in uh, the waiting room at a dentist because that oh. boy actually says you know we gotta question god but i think what Gaines wanted to say through that character is not to question the existence of you know the mystical the spiritual god but the God that, uh, you know, people use as a rhetorical tool. I mean, I mean, God is used as an excuse for racism, basically. It is what preacher done what he does. And I always connect Gaines with Smith that way. I mean, you know, basically the boy from Gaines' story from the waiting room criticizes preacher Dunwoody and he's, his use of God. I mean, Dunwoody well, obviously you- doesn't mean God as God, but God as, you know, the idea of God is the idea of control, of control and of segregation and of always being above people of color, not God, the mystical God that, you know, created the universe and stuff. So it's look really at the, cool. look at the preacher in the sky is great. That's exactly what we we're talking about. Like Henry, he's bought into somebody that, system. that internalizes the right. colonized. That's one of my favorite scenes yeah. too, by the way. Yeah, actually. And I actually think he slapped that boy or I actually never understood if he is like a teenager or a boy or something. He's a, because, he's a, he's a student probably in college is what he is. Yeah. It's the best of both words, really. Yeah. <laughs> I think actually the priest slapped that boy twice because he didn't want to admit that the boy had a point. I mean, mm-hmm. that he was right to a certain extent. I mean, in my opinion, he was totally right, but it's actually what happens to a lot of religious people in Romania but they actually do not accept that the world is a bit more complex than, than what presents. And they always excuse this pretty one-sided view of the world by saying, you know, this is God's world. No, this is your interpretation of what the Bible says, not what God actually said or what Jesus said. And you know? Lillian Smith deals with that too. Yeah, I actually loved Smith for the whole preacher Dunwoody character and how the... Um, that religious sermon from the book happens where, where the circus takes place because the whole, they, our whole discussion <laughs> and description of the revival, I think. Yeah, yeah. the revival, the, exactly. The fact that he climbs place. a pole one time during his sermon that has just impressed everyone's memory so much that he, he actually did kind of circus tricks while he was preaching. Yeah, and that's funny because what she, I think what she definitely says is that, you know, some preachers are actually like from a circus and the church actually some churches at least are like a circus they're not actually meant for people to find you know some spiritual solace or something The people are just the priests just are those people that like control animals that look at 
people like you know they look at people like individuals they can't control because they have the power and it's like a circus you know a bread and circus like you know the old latin saying and so this- I, i think it's really incredible what smith did because she in a way i felt she criticized the romanian church as well and <laughs> you know it's crazy because she obviously refers to certain you know some priests from the south but you can apply it to many places from romania because religion is also important in romania right. i i know that in the south the south is a bit more oriented toward religion i might be wrong but this is the impression that i've got you know the 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 south is like more oriented towards the countryside and this is how like romania is we are very church oriented we are very um, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people from the countryside we are more oriented towards tradition which is not something bad and as you said professor bennett i mean if i were from the south and someone would ask me why do you stay things are not looking good and i would just answer because this is my home you know it's like when you travel to a country where it's obviously better than than in in your hometown like the whole situation the people are different you know i think it feels better but at the end of the day you have that special feeling you know of being home only when you return to your home you know it's a really beautiful feeling and i think smith through Eddie's character and Bess's character really expresses this beautifully because I emphasized with Ed a lot, like Nani's brother, because he enjoyed being out, but at the same time, there was something he wouldn't admit that he actually enjoyed being back to Maxwell, you know? And I think to some degree, he did enjoy being back there, even if he apparently hated it, but somewhere deep inside, I think he actually enjoyed being there. It's a relationship I think we all have with our hometown our country our you know region where we come from is this universal feeling of being spiritually connected to the place you were born in and it's it's really she incredible says, um she says you're always look you're always looking for the self that you were when you were there yeah you know that you um it's not just the memory of the place it's the memory of yourself in the place maybe yeah and, but yeah, it's also the memory you. of the place it's i mean it's nostalgia it's, Yeah. yeah, it is. It and is nostalgia is a hell of a drug. Yeah, people <laughs> often, you know, talk bad about nostalgia, but I think it's such an amazing, an amazing, you know, feeling that actually gave so much to art in general, to literature, to music and so on. I mean, it's almost, it reminds me of how people see nostalgia in Romania because most people, you know, some older people miss the times during communism, but I don't blame them. I mean, I enjoyed their stories. It was their life. It was their younger selves you know maybe some aspects were better back then and you know you can't blame anyone for being nostalgic and you know i'm a very nostalgic person i mean right now i'm i am in my hometown and i often have this like punches of nostalgia when i walk <laughs> through the streets that i walk every single day because i have so many memories and i think all of us have some really special memories of both ourselves our younger selves and the places themselves from our hometown from our region and so on you know it's as i said it's an universal feeling that i think we all have if no matter how bad the situation may look i mean i if someone says i love self i mean i will never think you know that person loves segregation and racism no that person <laughs> loves their home it's a human feeling we all feel it and even if the south in america is connected unfortunately with segregation and racism like we in romania always had some sort of contact of positive contact with the south actually i mean everyone in romania read mark twain everybody my parents my grandparents and most of my friends myself actually all of us watched gone with the wind <laughs> and we loved it and hattie mcdaniel was the first woman first woman of color to ever win an oscar but we know we didn't make the connection that being black is bad no one ever told us these details even if we would learn at school at history you know somewhat we would so, learn so about do we so do we want to get into that conversation about which one to come with the <laughs> we well, actually I mean, used it was, that uh, we, we well, need to start wrapping up but It was very interesting that you that you said that that most people in I want to talk about games but what you just said was fascinating that most people in Romania have read Mark Twain that you know watched Gone with the Wind and done this and the thing is Mark Twain's not you could possibly say Mark Twain is lost cause but he's not there are others <laughs> who are more overtly lost cause but the Gone with the Wind thing really struck me when you said that 
because you, you talked about watching off the wind and loving it. And then that's your image of the South. And then the switch to saying, not realizing of these tensions there, right? Of these tensions between African-Americans and whites. And even Louisiana, if you see in gains between Cajuns, wealthy white, I mean, all of these kind of tensions. Yeah. And what stands out there, a couple of things is, you know, one that gone with the wind through and through is a fictionalized, I mean, everything, all the things that we're doing here is fiction, but a fictionalized, glamorized version of the South that's the lost cause, right? That's meant to erase those tensions and to create Hattie as that, or not Hattie, to create Hattie McDaniel's characters as the mammy and as the, you know, the woman who's there just to basically serve Scarlet. Right. So, yeah, so, so you're, you're getting, you're getting that filtered <laughs> mythologized glory of the South By the way, without um, the truth of it. Adrian, at some point, if you do any more work on this, you might want to read Lillian Smith's review of Gone with oh. the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <my laughs> it's God. really scathing. And yeah, they were it's writing like, it's like a cotton, It's like a cotton ball in my ear or something is my favorite line from that. She didn't like it. And they even went and interviewed Margaret Mitchell mm-hmm. at one point and they were pretty kind to her during the her interview, apology. but but they thought the novel was just full of baloney, you know, in a lot of ways. But we used uh, in the other class, I used Gone with the Wind as kind of a springboard and we talked about it as a grand narrative, as a kind of accepted I mean, my, mythology. My mom we, had like the anniversary video. Oh, I love the book. I mean, as my, I, I hate to say it that way, but it is so compelling. It is such a good read. But it's a rousing story, you know. But what needs to be done another thing i would suggest to you to go find frank yerby's the fox is a hero which is 1946 it, it's it's his response basically to gone with the wind yeah um i mean even at the time there were a lot of people that that oh, said yeah. wait a minute you know this like, is not like the naacp and yeah. everybody and there's a lot of i guess interesting stuff with that but like I said, what, what what you're getting into there is that construction of the lost cause narrative, you know, that the yeah. South was good. I mean, not saying there weren't good things in the South, but but the, the South wasn't wrong in what it was doing. And I'm trying to think of it. I don't remember exactly what I was going to say. I remember Walter White's kind of comments about the film and George Shiler's comments about the film. I think it's really fascinating. Uh, oh, I remember what I was going to say. So Eugene Talmadge was governor of Georgia during that period when Gone with the Wind came out. Very racist governor, very demagogue governor. If I remember correctly, do you know what book he read a lot? I, I have a point with, with this. Do you, do you know what book he read and how in his nightstand, if I remember correctly, if it's him correctly? Mein Kampf. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so the other thing too, do you know what Hitler's favorite movie was or one of them? Uh, you can guess. Because I don't know, but these are questions that... Wow. Why? So this is the, so one of Hitler's favorite movies was Gone with the Wind and Hitler and the Nazis looked to the U S South for kind of a lot of their laws and a lot of their kind of, you know, programs against the Jews and others, right. They were looking to us for what they were going to end up doing. And he, I forget the comment. I I wrote it down at a dinner party. He basically said that the South losing the war was horrendous because it basically, you know, screwed up the U S or something like that. I forgot exactly what he said. So gone with the wind plays in with this, with this, with this kind of thread. And then it goes back and forth, right. With, with Eugene Talmadge and with this, it's a really entangled kind of thing. And what, and what I find interesting too, and I haven't mentioned this yet either, we could go on for two hours. We don't need to, but is, is the fact that the focus on the South and Lillian Smith points out, it's not just the South, it's the North. The North is complicit in whatever happens here too. And she also, that's when she points to Britain too. And she's like, Britain is complicit within their colonialism and their imperialistic endeavors in the same thing that's going on here. Yet the United States South is the one who gets slammed with all the sins. Yeah. I feel like one of the things that I was uh, thinking during some parts of our conversation here are that it's very easy for Americans to study the Nazism and feel good about themselves because they're not Nazis and that they would never do something like that. And I think similarly for people in other parts of the world to study the American South, you have a similar feeling like, like, at least we never did that, you know, but I think that um, being able to look at your own culture and be really honest and transparent about similar kinds of dynamics is really what Smith was trying to encourage. I think that she was trying to put out an alternate narrative, you know, the, the lost cause narrative. She was a contemporary. I mean, 
Mm-hmm. She was a woman. She was the agrarians, a lesbian, and she was uh, really from the kind of the upper middle class. And for her to come out and counter the narratives, the really strong narratives of Georgia and the South, and say this is absolutely not. I'm not accepting this. Was to me so courageous. Now she was middle class, so she had a privilege she could speak from. I think I think that but, was her blind spot, truthfully. I, that, I that's another that. issue. I, I just want to end on this because we're, we are going long. She makes a good point in the white Christianist conscience. And she talks about, she's talking about the church. So what Dunwoody talks about, and she's talking about religion. And one thing she says there, this was written during the war. I don't have the exact date, um, Tanya may, but it's definitely in the forties. But she says that nowhere in the, in the country is hatred for the, for the Nazis greater than in the South. And she, ba- she basically says nowhere is it greater than in the South because of the fact that somebody is worse than us and we're not looking at ourselves. That's basically what she says. Right. Yeah. And she also points out too, she's like, Germany let itself be lulled to sleep by Hitler. The South has done the same, right, by white supremacy. So I, di- I think there are a lot of things. And like I said, this is what I talked about with Michal Hoyinski, too, in Poland. These issues are universal, but we think about them regionally. So in part of that thinking about them, I like what you said, Tanya, about, you know, if you're reading about this in Norway, you're like, oh, it happened there. I'm not as bad as them. Right. But yet look what I'm doing to Muslim immigrants or to Roma or to Poles. Right. Same thing in the U.S. Oh, look, I'm not doing the same thing that the Nazi regime's doing. Smith points it out. I don't totally agree with the way she phrases either, but she's like, you know, we've killed this many people with lynchings and they've killed 6 million Jews. It's the same, essentially. The numbers aren't the same, but it's like what we're doing is actually the same. And then even after the war, there was African-American groups who, you know, when the UN defined genocide, there was a petition to the UN we charged genocide in 1951. And they went through and said, here's your definition of genocide from the Holocaust, basically. And here's how the U.S. is doing this. And they yeah. ta- they list incidents from around the war, about 1945 to 51, all the racial violence incidents. And a mm-hmm. lot of them are against former soldiers. So I think thinking about these things within the connections, what's overlapping them is very important even though there are differences there are similarities i think so i know we went all over the place and i apologize for that but i really appreciate y'all being with us today in this great conversation it's been fun thank you it was really fun i mean we we got to look at certain insights that (laughs) i think people usually do not really discuss and i find this really amazing i mean I, uh, you know, uh, when talking about the Roma community, I give a lot of insights that usually I don't talk to people about because people often, they just say, oh, so you're racist, so you do not accept people. And no, that's not the issue. This is not who I am. It's complicated, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's very complicated. I mean, it just is. But I, I think that uh, this class, like the class we had this semester was really eye-opening. Although, you know, Romanian people do have uh, a knowledge about what is going on in the South, but except these, uh, you know, fictionalized uh, narratives of what's going on, just because it's really far away and it's just hard to perceptually understand what's really going on when mm-hmm. that reality is just so, so remote from what we have here. Exactly. It's just, yeah. it's And people, you know, just think of, the uh, things we you just said earlier regionally because it's hard to think beyond it's, you know it's just too difficult for the human mind to understand sometimes yeah well i brought back a lot of insights that i learned just watching uh romanian society uh that so i learned a lot i think learning from each other is is a uh, a great boon of this kind of relationship this kind of um yes. and let's 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 end with that, because, I mean, that's what Smith talks about is the building the bridges from one to another to another. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Adrian. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? 
Use the hashtag DopeWithLime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.